Hello, and welcome to the Learn It Podcast, a weekly conversation with global education leaders for people who are passionate about the future of learning. Our aim, to introduce you to change makers who are reimagining what students need to know, how they will learn it, and ways technology can help, or not. We look at learning in traditional settings, schools and universities, but also outside of them, after school, at home, and of course, at work. In our second series, we're looking at how schools are coping with COVID-19, including what lessons we will apply to the hopeful aim of building back better. Topics we obsess on include nimble innovations, closing equity gaps, and ways to prepare students with the mindsets and skills to thrive in what is proving to be a very uncertain world. I'm your host, reporter and author, Jenny Anderson. Our guest today is Camilla Leervik, rector of Elvabakken, one of Oslo's biggest public high schools. The heir to Norway's throne attends, as do plenty of students from far lesser means. It's a selective school based on ability. The lowest score for incoming students was a 5.23 out of six. And yet it is renowned for being progressive, for giving students voice and freedom to come and go as they like, but also to have a lot of choice in designing what they study. It's competitive, but students compete to help each other, Lervik says. They are high achievers together, motivated, not competing against each other, she told me. How does that work? The school discourages grades except for the twice annual required ones and designs classrooms and assessments to encourage collaboration. And what we learn is that if you use collaboration as a method of learning, the outcome of the curriculum is higher, a lot higher. The results are phenomenal. We discuss how Elva Bakken builds skills such as collaboration and time management and whether this approach works for all students or just Elva Bakken's high achieving ones. We also unpack her claim that Elva Bakken is not a regular school, but rather an environment. Camilla, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for letting me be part of your show. It strikes me that your school has done a lot of thinking about how to prepare students for the future. What would you say are the skills, mindsets that Elva Bakken should be helping young kids to have? I think just for us, the most important thing is that we are something more than just a traditional school. We want to teach them something that they can use for the rest of their lives. Uh, and skills that they need in higher education or whenever they get a job, if they do uh, vocational education. And traditional skills at school, like remember stuff, doesn't really work that well out there. Usually we, we will tell the students when they come here that they come to show us what they've already learned. Because it's not about proving what you know. It's about being part of the learning process with us and with our team of teachers and students. So that's super helpful. But if I were to pin you in a corner and say, what are some of those skills for the real world? The skills of collaboration is very important to us, both not only between the students or between the students and the teachers, but also between the teachers and the leaders of our school. So collaboration in all parts of the the organization is a very important thing to us. And it's a skill that you really need to learn. Because uh, that's something that will be very useful afterwards. And then to be able to understand the consequences of those choices that you'll make. And to do that, you have to practice. You have to practice making your choices and understand what they lead to. And then after a while, you get good at it and you will have strategies uh, that you will build up on. And then you will be able to try new things. So it sounds like collaboration is a really key one. And I think maybe what people might call agency or self-direction, that ability to shape a goal and then try to figure out what tools you need to get there. That sounds very accurate. Students have a lot of freedom to design their study. 
Explain to us how that works, because I think that's quite unique. There's actually two things that we do that helps out with building that flexibility so the student can make their own choices, not only within the subject, but also what kind of subjects they will choose for their grade. First of all, we uh, offer a lot of different subjects because we're a large school and we have a specializing in not only general academic studies, but also studies that will get you the same goal, but you specialize in media or in arts. And that gives us a very wide uh, opening of choices from different subjects that you can put together. And the Norwegian system is fairly good in that way. There's some subjects you need to do if you do science or if you do economics and language, which are the two main uh, lanes. But other than that, you can actually mix and pick whatever subjects you want to build your grade on. And the other way we do it is that we give the students freedom to use their time wisely. Uh, and back to the, the, the thoughts of making your own choices. So if, for instance, a course is on a normal time schedule, five hours a week, we will only schedule four hours a week with normal lessons. And the last hour we uh, call is a study time. So the student can choose either to uh, use the teacher that's there that you need that you normally have in that that subject or you can do something completely else you can use your time to prepare for maybe a test tomorrow or usually we don't want to have that many tests so uh, hopefully it'll be to a lesson tomorrow not a test or wherever you are in your uh, learning so it gives the, the students time to choose what they want to do. So 20% of any course is going to be dedicated to allowing that student to be in the classroom with the teacher of that course. So say I'm in physics, I could be there with my physics teacher, but I could be studying, I could be working on a project for art if that's what I need to do in that time. But if I had some holes in my learning about my physics, that would be a chance to talk to the teacher. And then the teacher would have more time because a lot of students are doing other things. So then the students who actually need help in that subject will be free to do that. And then we have uh, lessons on their time schedule uh, that we, we call like their free study hours that the students can and go to a free math class with the tutors, like young students that have been Students in our school before and now are in higher education. And then twice a week, they're here on the afternoon. And uh, you can go to that class with those students. And then you can actually submit those hours up. And then you can actually take a day off at some other point. So you're, you, you're learning time management on different levels. And these students come on Saturday. Because when we do Saturday classes, they will be here as well. And then they think that it's a, a gift to get a day off. But they never take the day off. At the end of the year, they have like 30 or 40 hours plus time. If I'm in my, that fifth day of my physics class, to use the example I was using, could I play Fortnite on my phone if I wanted? I mean, am I free? Am I really free to do anything I want? Our students usually don't. So it's not really a big problem. <laughs> you will be advised not to. But if that's your choice, I think you could do that if you want to. You're saying students who have graduated from Elbebach and sort of recent graduates, they come back twice a week to just offer a kind of peer-to-peer, near-peer tutoring, mentoring to these students in particular subjects or just kind of they're there and they can help with anything? We organize math and Norwegian, but they can do anything. They'll help you with whatever you need, if they can help you. And they just graduated like two or three years ago, so they know exactly what they would have wanted to learn in that level if they could do it again. So their help is very useful. 
And why are they coming back? I mean, if I'm a college student, I've moved on from my high school. I don't, I don't necessarily want to spend my day with 17 and 18 year olds. I think it's part of a, a culture that's built within all the stuff that goes into what we call something more than a school, which is they do a show every year, like a theater for upper secondary schools. A lot of the schools can also do that. And the culture here is strong on that and they do very well. Uh, they always get like top score in the, new, in the newspapers and stuff and, and they put down a lot of work and that's a huge project. So sort of their reviews, not an actual sort of grade or score. But it should be a grade because they do such a good work and this is learning. This is how they really learn how to collaborate and how to, to create something together that is really, really good. It's probably more learning and doing that in making that show together than in a lot of those other subjects. You're both a vocational and an academic school. You have media and communication, art design and architecture, but also electrical engineering and hairdressing. Is there a stigma to the vocational studies compared to the academic studies as there is in so many parts of the world? I feel that the teachers are very happy that they have that variation. And it's such different classes you go into, their different needs and our academic classes, they will challenge you within the subject, but everything else is everybody can do. But if you go into one of our vocationary classes, uh, some of them have struggled a lot more during their time in school. And it's really meaningful to help them to reach their goals in life. And I think that the teachers at Elvabakken really appreciates to be part of an organization where you can go into different kinds of classes. And I would never be a principal at a school that only had those academic classes uh, that Elbakken has. It's, that will be no challenge at all when it comes to really trying out those methods that really works on learning. And then you take those over to the academic classes because they will probably learn whatever you throw at them. So that's where we test out things that really works. And then we use them in all parts of the organization. We really appreciate the combined school and everything that comes with that. That's an important part of the history of school and uh, the culture of the school. During the fall, when the students come to our school, at the beginning, the first six months, we can see that the vocationary students, students feel that they're not really a part of the school. So it takes a little while until they feel that they're, they are also a part of the culture of Benabakken. But um, we work with that every day because it's so important. It has the same value. And do you feel it succeeds in time? I mean, if the challenge is there in the beginning, does it sometimes still exist at the end? At this point, we actually do have, like in the student council, students from vocational education. It's very important that they also get into those kind of jobs and they take part of that big show that we do and that they do have those different student clubs. And that's also a very important thing to make sure that our vocationary educational students also take part in those clubs. Uh, so that they will mix in with the rest of the of the group. It's interesting. You said to me in a previous conversation, it's not a school, it's an environment. And it sounds to me like what you're saying is the clubs and the production, the big show, you're trying to create experiences that allow for students to actually be together and that that helps maybe to destigmatize some of the perceived differences in the, in the two tracks. Absolutely. And you can imagine how life has been under COVID. Because uh, for us, that's really devastating because a lot of the things that we do that build that culture is very, very hard to do right now. So we have um, a lot of different things we try out and figure out how we can do and how we now can repair 
what we have lost. So if I'm in electrical engineering, can I take classes in economics? Or if I was in media and communication, could I take some electrical engineering classes? Is it kind of everybody can do anything? Almost, but not quite. If you do regular vocational education like electronics, you can do the math that you need to go on to uh, higher education. And in Norway, you can do two years in vocational education and then one in general academic. And at the same time frame as a general academic student, you will actually be qualified for higher education. And then we will give you the math you need to get into whatever you want. So at that point, you can actually mix most of it. But you can't take an art class if you're an um, in electrician. But we have created some programs that mixes vocationary and academic studies together. So then within three years, uh, you will have electronics and then you'll have the right math and you will have the subjects that you need to have the highest level of academic education after three years. It's not really very different from doing two years of vocational education and then one year of uh, general academic, but you get to mix them so that you will have a mix of all these subjects that you really like, like the electronics within all three years. Otherwise, the last year uh, of vocational education, if you move on to higher education, is a rough one. It's like 10 hours a week only with Norwegian. Let's talk a little bit about assessments, because it seems to me that in a program where you're able to pick some of the things you want, one of the challenges there is how you assess what students have learned. And you said earlier on that you want their experience at Eldbakken to be more about learning than it is about proving their knowledge. And yet, parents, and I assume universities, need to see some proof that they've learned stuff. So how do you do assessments? That's a nonstop conversation in our school because <laughs> we work a lot with that and we, we've come the long way, but we still have uh, some things that we want to do. First of all, we don't want our teachers to do a lot of traditional tests. We don't believe in them because what do they actually assess? Uh, they assess how good are you at, at remembering anything? or to do whatever you learned in like micro bits. And we don't believe in that. We believe in learning in longer projects. Maybe the whole year should be put together so that the learning that you do in one subject has an, like kind of an overbuilding so that you will actually understand the, the subject from the start until the end, uh, which we really like. Like we have several projects that do that this year, geography. And teacher uh, in that subject decided that they will choose one county in the country and whatever part of the subject they would teach through the year, a little bit of that subject will be connected to that county that they chose. So at the end, they have like a portfolio or like a map uh, of their knowledge in that subject instead of those bits and pieces which we really believe in. And in electronics, just to put it on the other side, they will take a house and make that a modern house with all the electronics that you will need to build a house. And if that's what we assess, and more the long-term learning than the bits and pieces, that makes sense to us. But the problem is that when you do that, you don't give the students grades very often. Because in a way, uh, we have to give the students grades twice a year. But other than that, there is no obligation. That's something that you actually choose by yourself. And we try to get our teachers to give our students as few grades as possible. And sometimes when you have a class of 32 students that all graduated junior high school with top score, and their parents have always known that they're top achievers, 
and then they come to our school and they don't get a grade for six months. And that the students, the students feel that they have control of their over their learning, but the parents don't always feel like that. I would imagine you get a lot of very very panicked parents. Everybody who's ever tried to change a grade scheme, it's always the parents who fight back first. One of our teachers said, "I'll just give them everybody top score uh, the first day we do the subject, and then after that, they will just have to prove to me they're worth it." And of course, he's a phenomenal teacher. He's uh, one of the best we have. But still, he has the confidence to just go in and just do that. And he works with the students on where are they at this point and what do you need to do to keep that top mark. But the most important thing right now is that we have evaluated with a lot of our students how COVID has impacted their daily life and how stressful it is. Because a lot of our students feel that it's very stressful and then they want the number of work to be a little bit lower and a little bit easier. And then one of the students said, you know what? I'm in that subject with that teacher who gave everybody a top score. And she said, that's the only subject where I really love to learn and I don't feel the pressure. I feel that I can just learn and work with the students and the teacher. And I feel that I will get a good result and it doesn't stress me. So Within the situation the students are in right now, that project is actually giving us some results that are really interesting that I think we need to look into because there is something with motivation for learning instead of getting the good results. It's even different from the absence of grades. By starting at that point, they feel a certain comfort in taking risks and learning. It's a very interesting story. So twice a year, you have to, you have, to have these exams. So how do you do those exams? Do you do those differently? You don't have to do exams. That's only at, at the end of a, a term or a year. But traditionally, a school would arrange for a first term and second term like a extended test. Usually it'll be a five-hour test in the big subjects. They, they cannot talk to each other. They will have a computer that is not connected to the internet and they have no book. So it's not like an open book test. It's only by themselves, and then they, they should write a text, and then they deliver the text, and then they, they get it assessed. For for a long time at Elbuckin, they have exper- experimented with how do we do those days to a learning process more than just a test. So they, they, they try the different models, and they're basically organized so that the students will sit down, they will read the, the task, and then they will meet in groups, and then they will discuss together what is it the task mean, how am I thinking, what are you thinking, and then they will get ideas from each other, and then they will start to write their text. And then after a while, the teacher will, will come around, and then the teacher will give you a feedback on different things in the text, and then they will make a new time frame for writing by yourself, and then you go back to your response group to discuss, okay, this is how far I've come now. This is what I'm helped help with. And then they can help each other again, and then they will finish their text. And then this process will be going on during the whole five hours. So at the end of the day, the, the students haven't only produced a text, but you actually learn a lot during those hours that you've been taking the test. In a way, you're supposed to assess the student at the end of the term of what you have seen of the students' skills in whole. You don't have to have exact tests to do that. You can sort of uh, collect what you see the students have developed of skills and put that together and then do the assessment. There's, there's not the tests themselves that are the assessment. 
it's it's how the, the teacher see the whole level of skills the students have at that point where you do that mark. They're assessing the skills they want to see in the students, such as collaboration. And then the test is sort of a moment to test those skills, your collaboration skills, as well as the content of the curriculum. Yeah. And and what we learn is that if you use collaboration as a method of learning, the outcome of the curriculum is higher, a lot higher. The results are phenomenal. Usually, I know that in some countries you do the tests at the end of the term and then you put you assess that and that's it. But in Norway, it's not like that. And it's probably like in our country and a lot of other countries as well. We work a lot with the understanding that it's not the tests. The tests are only to figure out where are the students at this point and what does this student need to move on uh, with their learning. So at the end, when you actually do put those grades on that subject at the end, that will actually count when you do higher ed- or you apply to higher education or later on. It is every skill in that subject uh, connected to that curriculum uh, that you are actually assessing. And it's not the test by itself. It's a much more holistic picture. So just quickly talk about university admissions, because I feel like, again, in systems like the U.S. and the U.K., part of the reason there are so many high stakes exams is a sorting process for university. How much are you influenced in what you can do by the university admissions process at the other end of your student's journey? University in Norway is free of charge, very different from the US. But still, if you want to study medicine or economics or stuff, things like that, uh, you need good grades. And a lot of our students want to go move forward to medicine or technology, uh, which they need high grades, basically, to get into that. The score in Norway is between one and six. Uh, and a lot of our students are at the top end of that. When you have students that are uh, achieving that well, we need to give them something more. Because it's not for a lot of them, it's not the biggest challenge to get the top score. The biggest challenge is to get those social skills, collaborational skills, and uh, how to make choices and how to time manage and then that will make them very good prepare for higher education. They tell us, the, stu- the students, when they uh, graduate from our schools and move on, that uh, they're very thankful for, for the skills that they've got. Uh, and we learn that when we work in this way, they develop the skills and they get great grades that are excellent. Uh, the grades in Norwegian, for instance, moved up about uh, from 3.6 to 4.6 within three years. Because after three years, they all have an, uh, a Norwegian exam, which is the old-fashioned one. They'll sit down, write a text for five hours. It's a little more than that. But then after three years of working with the subject and the skills that way, they do significantly better on the traditional exams as well. So working on, with this, the subject in this way also gives them better grades at the exams that helps them moving on. So it's, it's basically a win-win. Let's talk about COVID. For your particular model, what have been the biggest challenges and how are you going to do things differently in the future as a result of what you've learned from this year? I think that flexibility is not something that works very well with the, with COVID, <laughs> uh, but we do our best. And actually, we've been very fortunate with our building during this time. I don't know how it is in the UK, but in Norway, they're using a traffic light model. So from the the yellow until the red, there's a challenge there because when we're on red, every student needs to be at least one meter apart in the classroom. 
And for most schools, that means that uh, you have to split the class in two. Uh, and then half of the class is at home and half of the class is at the school. And that kind of teaching doesn't work very well with quality. Even with our student group, we can, we can say that that doesn't really work, especially with maths, at least not with the tools we have right now. But our building is very different. So we have those large classrooms that has helped us because then we can have the whole class in one room and still have them a meter apart. We can have 1,450 students in the, the school at the same time, but we can have 800, 850 students in the whole group at the same time. And when the teacher then has digital lessons, they will have that with the whole group, which at least gives top quality on a little more than 50% of the, the classes. Unfortunately, they changed the devices that they give us on how to run the school so that it... Um, protects the students. So now we have to split every class into less than 20 students, even though they're, they're sitting in a huge room. So now we're back to the, the model that most of the schools have had for the whole year. And I'm so glad that we have been able to, to do something else because it really doesn't work that well. You've talked about math being a particular challenge. Were there any subjects and or areas that the digital learning was better or that there's things from, you know, the changes you've made that you hope to carry over, or are you just very much going back to normal as soon as you can? I think it's actually very important not to go just back to normal. Because what we're talking about now is we need to make sure that we uh, take this t uh, opportunity to think again and decide what we want to do in the future, because it's such a big turning point. And we learned a lot from the, the digital learning and what works and what doesn't work. And in some of the subjects, subjects, it really works well. And for some students, it works really well. Maybe we should think more about each student as an individual, more than that they're always a group. Because maybe they will learn differently in the future. Maybe somebody will learn more from digital learning than others. Uh, and so we're, we're thinking a little bit on how we can explore that. Because we see that students that have had a hard time coming to the school earlier on, they would actually now be part of the, the lessons and they will be more active actually than they used to do in, in a classroom. So we've seen that students are very different in digital learning than they are in the real classroom. So for the biggest group, the, the physical learning is the best learning, but maybe that's not so for everybody. And maybe we should think more uh, individual about learning. And will you sort of invest more and experiment more with digital learning and maybe the option of that for more students in the next academic year? Probably, yes. And then not only with the lessons that they or the teaching they do at home more, but what about homework? <laughs> what's, what's the point of homework and why do we do it? And can we do it in a different way? The students and the teachers now are a lot more digital, so we can think more of using the time that they're actually at school to collaborate more and then the digital learning can be more of what they prepare for at at home before they come to school and then i think how they use digital learning in the classroom as well elva bakken is the top performing school in oslo but it also only takes the top students it's a selective school i'm curious if you think schools that don't have such a high achieving population could take some of the risks that you're taking. Are you able to do that because of the very high quality of academic performance your students have already exhibited? 
actually, I think it's the, the other way around. I worked with students that don't achieve that high earlier on, and the results were even better. Make them believe that they can learn. Make them believe that they can actually achieve something. And, and then they will actually start learning, and then they will do very good results. And I actually feel it's, it's even harder to do this with these, the students at this school because the risks are higher. The only risk they have is that they will uh, show you that they don't know how to do it. And that's probably something that they, will, they have done for a lot of years. I asked some of my students when I was a teacher, I had the same two or three boys at the back of my classroom that didn't do anything. They're just waiting for time to pass, basically. So I started having some conversation with these students and asking them, why do you do that? And then they said exactly that. Uh, we're waiting for time to pass. And then after a while, we, were, we agreed on the fact that they don't want to show me that they don't know what to do. And if they are lazy, that's more socially accepted than just uh, don't know. If you don't know, if you're stupid, that's something. If you're lazy, that's a lot better for them in the, in the, in the social uh, environment in the school. So they choose that strategy. And then we started to work on how they can believe in what they, that they can actually learn. And then we took a lot of those risks out, stopped doing anything that had to do with grades, and then worked with them and put up goals for them for the year. And all the students in those projects did over one uh, mark higher than their goals were. I studied um, teaching and learning in uh, higher education as a master at that point. So my class was a kind of <laughs> test out class. But it, that's why I believe it that much, believe in it, because I, I worked even with those students who had a hard time in school and I know it works for them as well. That's a perfect note to end on. I have three questions left. They're very quick. And if they're in Norwegian, you'll have to do your best to translate for us. What is your favorite book about learning? I think the, the last book was Deeper Learning. Deeper Learning. Okay. We'll, we'll find that one. And then are you binge watching anything? Are you watching any TV show that you love? Right now, I'm, a, I'm a watching four couples remodeling a sub, summer cabin, which is a very interesting. <laughs> and what is the show called? Somerita. Perfect. And what does that actually mean in English? <laughs> uh, the summer cabin. The summer cabin. Wonderful. Camilla, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much. I love hearing stories about schools that give students a ton of freedom. I sort of expect it won't work, which is weird. I should know better. But it's always interesting to see how removing or loosening the rules doesn't result in anarchy or mass absenteeism. Indeed, Elva Bakken students show up to Saturday school even though they're not required to do so. It strikes me that this idea of creating a hypercharged learning is cool environment is something that many of us want to do, but struggle, either because of institutional or cultural obstacles, or because giving students a ton of freedom can be scary. I enjoyed hearing about how the school combines its vocational and academic tracks and how it finds ways, the massive annual school production for one, to let the kids interact. I also really love the peer-to-peer -peer model where recent graduates come back to mentor and tutor students. I'm puzzled that they choose to do this, but impressed. Thanks for listening. We'll link to the items mentioned in today's podcast in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and share it. And you can find out more about our community of global education leaders and upcoming meetups by joining our mailing list at learnit.world. In the meantime, stay safe, stay curious, and see you next week.